Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Michael Ramore from the City University of New York. And I'm your co-host, Ahmed Lamazmi from Princeton University. So today I'm here to talk to Professor Sana Ayer, the author of Indians in Kenya, The Politics of Diaspora, published by Harvard University Press in 2015. Sana Ayer is Associate Professor of History at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And by discussing this book, we'll learn about the Indian diaspora in Kenya and the ways they sought political power, both in colonial and post-independence context. Speaking from Atlanta, New York, welcome, Sana, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Thanks very much, Emmett and Michael. I'm looking forward to this. And, um, you know, thank you for inviting me to what uh, is a really wonderful series. Our pleasure. So let's just start with you. Can you start us off by uh, saying a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school how you became interested in your field of study, and any influential mentors or scholars that um, particularly um, guided you? Sure. So, um, you know, when I started working on this book, um, my interviewees and anyone I would early, you know, present this work to would inevitably assume that I was from East Africa. Um, And in fact, the first time I went to East Africa was for uh, my research. Um, I was actually born in Karachi in Pakistan, but I grew up in Delhi um, and I grew up in Delhi in the 1990s, you know, which is my what I think of as my formative years as a high schooler and then sort of an undergraduate. Um, it was the 1990s where India was going through a whole bunch of transitions um, in terms of the economy. The economy had liberalized, opened up. Um, suddenly Coke and Pepsi were available. Um, my childhood thumbs up that had been produced locally was no longer the go-to soda drink. Um, and, you know, there were a whole bunch of sort of social and economic changes that had been brought about by liberalization. And uh, there was also, on the other hand, politically, uh, the early rise of Hindu nationalism, the first demands for building, um, you know, a, a Ram temple in the place of, a, a, you know, medieval mosque were being made. And it seemed as if sort of India was at this transition point, both economically, but even in terms of how the nation defined itself, and a kind of move away from early independence, you know, the post-independence definition of India as a secular country is one that embraced uh, unity in diversity. And, uh, you know, as someone coming into her sort of uh, independent intellectual, um, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, moorings, I found that history was a good way to begin to understand the questions I should be asking. You know, I had hoped that history would be the way in which I could get to the answers. But in fact, it was a way um, it was a way it was an entry point into understanding what was really at stake in that contemporary moment in the 1990s. 
And of course, you know, once I, you know, started my undergraduate degree in history, I was hooked. And, you know, I've been a historian ever since I was 18 years old. And I went to, you know, as I said, I did my undergraduate degree in uh, India at the University um, of Delhi. It's in Stevens College. Um, I then went on to pursue a second BA at uh, the University of Cambridge in the UK. And then I came to uh, Harvard uh, in the US uh, to do my PhD. And along the way, um, I have had an incredibly inspiring and supportive group of teachers and historians um, in school. I, you know, my first my memory of someone making history exciting actually was my mother, who brought to me a book called Eyewitness to History that was about the Second World War. And, um, uh, you know, there were, it was just sort of these oral histories um, that made me think, okay, actually, history is not just about dates. Uh, but in high school, I had a wonderful mm-hmm. teacher called Biba Sopti. Uh, once I got into uh, St. Stephen's College, Shiv Shankar Menon, Tanika Sarkar, Rupinder Singh, who are all sort of in their own right, real mm-hmm. sort of um, sort of heavyweights as far as South Asian history is concerned, both in uh, the modern period, but also as, um, sort of the ancient period. Um, from Cambridge, I went to, uh, sorry, from Delhi, I went to Cambridge, uh, where mm-hmm. I studied under William Gold, uh, whose work on um, uh, communalism in North India was really influential to me. Uh, John Lonsdale, uh, the doyen of East African Kenyan history, was, uh, you know, in his penultimate year of teaching at Cambridge, and that's when I got interested in Kenyan history. And then, of course, I came to Harvard um, to work under Shogato Bose, whose work on the Indian Ocean had just been published, which, you know, clearly was super influential, you know, not just for me, but, you know, this entire new uh, historiography on uh, mobility and South Asia. I was lucky to have Caroline Elkins, who had just won her Pulitzer Prize for her book on the Mau Mau, um, who was on my committee. And, uh, you know, those are sort of the teachers and the historians. But my main interlocutors, as I began to move from Mm. dissertation to book manuscript, were colleagues of mine, uh, Africanist colleagues of mine uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, as well as at Johns Hopkins, Jim Sweet and Neil Kodesh, you know, read the book, you know, from the perspective of Africanists uh, who were extremely um, uh, supportive and kind, uh, but also critical as was needed to, you know, someone who was really a South Asianist interloper in their field. Um, and Pierre Lawson, uh, you know, whose work on the Indian Ocean for amongst Africanists has been hugely uh, influential, was one of my mentors when I did a postdoc at Johns Hopkins. Uh, and I just wanted to mention him last but not the least, because uh, he tragically passed away a couple of weeks ago. And it's a real loss to the field of Indian Ocean studies, um, as well as to me personally. Thank you. So let's just turn to the book, uh, Indians in Kenya. So how did the idea for um, this book in particular develop? And what was your research process like? um, And how was the writing experience overall? You know, back in 2002, um, you know, uh, many of these, you know, I realize as I get older that uh, as historians, what we do and what we write about is always very intimately connected to our personhood and our personal experiences, although it wasn't all that clear to me as I got into this. But, you know, back in 2002, um, I was in uh, England. I was studying at Cambridge. Um, I was away from home for the very first time. And home had shifted. Um, in February 2002, massive communal riots took place in Gujarat. Um, you know, the worst riots uh, at the time since independence. Um, and as I was reading about it, trying to understand how the India that I knew had 
suddenly moved, you know, suddenly uh, things that we had read about in history books seem to be playing out, um, you know, in in India, uh, in Gujarat. Uh, You know, as I was reading a lot about it, I read that a lot of the funding for uh, groups that had been at the forefront of pushing the Hindu nationalist agenda, a lot of that funding had come from the diaspora, the diaspora in the UK, in the US um, and elsewhere. And you know, having grown up in India, we had never really thought about the diaspora in a serious way. In some ways, you know, the Indians who didn't live in India were those who sort of left, they left, uh, you know, before liberalization when they thought they wouldn't, you know, especially those who went to places like the UK and the US, you know, we talked about the brain drain, we talked about those who, um, you know, seemed as if they didn't really want to um, uh, do the hard work that was needed to build the nation. There was that sort of uh, very uh, tense relationship between India and the Indian diaspora in, um, you know, the the more in developed, quote unquote, developed countries. So I hadn't really thought much about them. But then when I read about this funding coming in, the question for me was, well, Hindu nationalism is this territorial, religious, nationalist political project in India. So why are Hindus in you know, in in London, why are Hindus in New York, why are Hindus uh, sort of in California interested in sending money back to these organizations? And that's where I got interested in identity and what the relationship between the diaspora, uh, the Indian diaspora is between its homeland, India, um, and the places where they were. Um, So, you know, this was sort of in the backdrop of my, uh, you know, non-classroom thinking. Uh, When I went into the classroom with John Lonsdale, who I'd mentioned, who was offering a class on the Mau Mau Rebellion. And part of why I had taken that class was, you know, I was writing a thesis on South Asian history at Delhi University in the three years that I did my BA. It was all about Um, you know, mostly Indian South Asian history and a little bit of European history, we hadn't really learned anything about Africa. In fact, you know, in many ways, Africa was like this blank space in our, um, you know, in our sort of collective imagination, but also in the sort of historical imagination. We knew about Gandhi, of course, but only that, you know, Gandhi was in South Africa for a while and he comes back like a Mahatma. There were no details. I certainly, you know, when I, so so I wanted to take a class that would teach me something completely new, but wasn't so completely out of my purview that I would, you know, do very badly and not be able <laughs> to deal with it. So this class on the Mama Rebellion that I knew nothing about mm-hmm. in a country called Kenya that I knew nothing about just sort of triggered my interest. And within the first two weeks, I was completely hooked. And, uh, you know, John Lonsdale used to, talk, you know, it was mostly about the rebellion, but there were a few names, Pio Gama Pinto and Makhan Singh that came up. And I recognized them immediately as being South Asian names. I even recognized them as being Punjabi, Sikh, and Goan names. And when I asked Lonsdale about it, he said, you know, there, there is this dissertation to be written, but uh, you know, we know about the Uganda expulsions, we know about South Africa, but in fact, there was a substantial number of Indians in Kenya. So that's when, you know, I had been thinking about the diaspora and its relationship with um with India because of the Gujarat riots, uh, you know, had gotten interested in Kenyan history because of Lonsdale. And then, you know, there were these Indians in Kenya. Um, So that's when I began to read a little bit around them. um, And I applied for my PhD to Harvard, uh, you know, to work on what was actually initially a project on the rise of Hindu nationalism amongst the diaspora and within that, the diaspora in the UK. And more specifically, um, the very first group of Hindus who mobilized in the UK um, were those who came from East Africa. So I thought that I had found this wonderful connection. But as happens, uh, and you know, in fact, my advisor, Shagadabo, still tells me you were supposed to have written that 
the dissertation on the rise of Hindu nationalism in the UK, <laughs> and what you ended up doing something else. And you know that, in a way, is the research project and the uh, the, the research process and the writing a process. Um, I was able to get a grant to go to Kenya the first year of grad school just to go and check out the archives there. And, you know, I just found an amazing set of documents. I was able to contact a whole bunch of people and activists um, uh, in Nairobi itself. Um, and it was really the archives that, that then led me to the project, uh, you know, the dissertation and then the book that focused uh, on Indians um, in Kenya. And as happens, you know, the whole process in graduate school was learning and unlearning how to write. Um, you know, for a seminar paper is different from what you produce as the first draft of the chapter. And you now that has basically continued. The book manuscript, I think, went through at least three massive rewrites. Um, uh, much of that because of those interlocutors I had, um, Neil Kodesh, Jim Sweet, and Pierre Lawson. But it was also about sort of, you know, the field itself was developing. When I started off doing this research back in 2004, there were very few people working on uh, the politics of um you know, African and Asian relations in East Africa. But, you know, by the end of it, there's a critical mass there. Um, and I think that the rewriting really was about those conversations, you know, the sharing of ideas, the contestation of uh, framing, how we frame uh, the material we find, and of course, finding uh, that material. Thanks. And that leads actually to my next question, which is, um, how do you see the book um, intervening in um, scholarship on migration and empire in the Indian Ocean? You know, there's been, um, I, I sometimes wish that uh, graduate programs would just have the Indian Ocean um, sort of field. And in some ways, I think the scholarship and the graduate students have pushed the field of South Asian history into the Indian Ocean. Um, you know, so, but, but as I said, uh, when I started out, you know, there was uh, Shugata Bose, who, of course, had written um, his, uh, his really sort of, uh, I think, significant historiographical intervention in Indian Ocean studies. But, you know, at the same time, uh, Tom Metcalf has also written his work on the Indian Ocean, and it seemed as if uh, people were moving away from this idea of politics, nationalism, and territoriality to look at the, the horizons of the ocean. And those early works, I think, were really formative in expanding out, uh, you know, what, uh, in sort of really reconceptualizing who and what and the people and the goods and the spaces that constitute South Asia. But ultimately, I think for both those books, the idea had been to tie it back into India, ultimately. And uh, But there were a whole bunch of these uh, openings, you know, the, the mobility was one of them, right? Uh, the migration and some of those, uh, some and capital. So some of the work that had looked at the migration of, uh, you know, people across the Indian Ocean had tended to look at an indenture um, and continue sort of to do so. But there were, of course, you know, there's capital too. There's capitalism. There's capitalism that wasn't just colonial capitalism, but um, sort of, uh, you know, West Indian capitalism as well uh, from, from the Western Indian to post. So I began, you know, I, I was reading these works. Um, there is now, as I said, a critical mass. But I found what was frustrating about the work that came out just on diaspora was that the diaspora tended to be classified um, and understood in sort of these almost sort of social science terms of push and pull factors. And those were ultimately not as nuanced as I was looking for. They sort of took away the intimacy and the everyday mundaneness of what 
a migrant, you know, the position actually of a migrant, the experience of the migrant. Um, it also tended to frame the figure of the migrant as, um, you know, alienated from both the host land and the homeland and a kind of uh, what I think is a false binary was set up in those frameworks of, you know, the homeland and the host land being completely sort of separate. So when I was starting out this project and as I began to develop it, I really sort of looked at three key themes, um, space, race and place. Um, by space, I meant sort of, you know, what is diasporic consciousness, right? The figure of the immigrant um, and its relationship with the homeland and hostland, not simply as scaffolding uh, for us to really, you know, look at the homeland and hostland as separate, but really sort of to look at two homelands, right, and not flatten out the figure of the migrant into uh, just, you know, one one sort. Um, the second uh, was place. Um, I think that we have to really keep into play both mobility and territoriality. Uh, so this wasn't, you know, I was very clear that I wasn't going to write a book on the cosmopolitanism of Indians. I think that there is a place there and there's some excellent work that has been done on it. But territory, you know, but as much as mobility was a key factor in this diasporic consciousness, so was territoriality. And ultimately, this is a story about Indians in Kenya. And there's something that is distinctive, I think, about that history um, and that experience that I wanted to look at. That. And um, and then lastly was race, uh, and I think that it is here that really the conversation on race and understanding racial consciousness can shift away from colonial frameworks of race being understood as black um, versus uh, versus white or a brown versus white, but actually look at Asian, um, uh, you know, South Asian African uh, entanglements of racial understanding as a kind of shifting field of discourse and shifting sort of uh, structural um, frameworks within which to place the Indians and Africans. And it's from there that I really sort of pulled out and said, well, you know, actually, we cannot even think about race relations as something singular. And in fact, what you have here is uh, race being deployed both to distance uh, by Indians in Kenya to both distance themselves from Africans, but also to establish proximity. And it was that messiness and that sort of focus on the shifting uh, forms of uh, discourses of identity and claim making that I think ultimately was um, sort of the hook for my book. These are definitely uh, worthwhile interventions in the field. And I would add also that um, contrary to the previous scholarship that sort of disconnects 7050 from what came after, this also connects the early modern uh, sort of, you know, long durée connections between South Asia and East Africa into the 20th century. Um, Absolutely. I would like now to turn to the book uh, and its chapters. The book is divided in six chapters with an introduction and epilogue. In the introduction, we learn that the Indian population in Kenya increased dramatically between 1887 and 1968 from about 7,000 to over 175,000. How did the dynamics of migration and settlement change over the course of the 19th and the 20th century? And if I may add... um, could you give us a basic introduction to the history of South Asian migrations to South, to East Africa? Where did they come from? When and why? What was their relationship uh, to indigenous Africans? And what were some of the economic activities that the Indians were involved in? Um, thanks, Ahmed. That's a huge, huge uh, question. And in some ways, that was absolutely what the book was about. So I'm going to sort of um, parse, I think, some nuggets from that Um the um, 
So, so, you know, just sort of very, very broadly in terms of migration patterns, there had been, you know, as you uh, alluded to, there had been, of course, contact between, um, you know, across the Indian Ocean, between East Africa and South Asia for centuries. Um, there is something that I think shifts in the late 19th century. Um, and the shift is uh, both in terms of numbers, uh, but also in terms of intimacy, uh, the intimacy of contact, right? Um, so the numbers increase uh, quite clearly because of British imperialism, right? Once um, India becomes a colony, uh, East Africa, uh, you know, certainly sort of Kenya and uh, Uganda, and then eventually Tanganyika after the First World War become part of the British Empire, there are opportunities. Um, so, you know, there's both sort of um, a, a, a vision, right, uh, an idea of space that gets kind of anchored along the imperial map. Uh, there is, of course, the old proximity in the old networks. But what happens is that there's a rise in the numbers of people who go to trade um, across to East Africa. So you have a lot of traders. And these traders are no longer simply people who are going in DAOs um, to go and collect goods and bring them back. But there's a kind of multiple layer of economic um of economic interaction and anchoring that takes place as British, uh, as sort of East Africa comes under British rule, wherein sort of the traders, you know, you have sort of those who are going back and forth, but you also have, you know, across the littoral realms of the Indian Ocean, but you also have a move into the hinterland as new opportunities come up for trade and the demand for um, Indian goods kinds of, kind of comes up. So you have sort of, uh, you know, in a way, three layers of um, trading activity. You have the oceanic trade. Um, you have those who become uh, fairly big firms in places like Mombasa, in places like Zanzibar, that are basically overseeing import and export, but also sending out uh, goods to the smaller retailers in the hinterland um, on consignment, uh, you know, on the basis of consignment. And there you get sort of the petty shopkeepers who were known as Dukawalas um, in East Africa. But it isn't just traders who go to East Africa. The East African Railway is laid and about 30,000 indentured laborers are taken from India, about 10,000 of whom choose to stay back. And they end up working in the railways as skilled workers or setting up shops themselves. And by the early 1910s, uh, by the uh, uh, you know late 1910s, early 1920s, you get a whole class of professionals. You get teachers and lawyers and doctors who are also coming through from East Africa, uh, from India into East Africa looking for jobs. So you see a whole bunch of people um, of different sort of job, uh, times of job descriptions and from all over India. You have Punjabis, Gujaratis, Goans. Um, you know, these are the three main predominant uh, groups that end up coming in. You have Hindus and Muslims. Um, so there is a divergence and a diversity of the kind of Indian who comes in. But in terms of scholarship, but also in terms of, to some extent, popular discourse, the image of, you know, quote unquote, the Indian becomes kind of flattened out into the exploitative trader, right, who remained aloof from uh, the people whom he traded with and was around. And it's that question that I really, you know, wanted to unpack, but also um, investigate a little more. Um, after all, how can it, trading, especially barter trade in the more, uh, in the hinterlands, you know, outside of the big cities, that was based so much on a back and forth. You know, any of us who have ever been um, to a flea market, right, anywhere in the world know that actually shopping is a very intimate experience. You have to know where to go. You end up returning to the same shop, so you get to know the shopkeepers. Um, there's a, there's an amount of, um, jo you know, sort of teasing that goes on, you know, in a way sort of... Uh, 
negotiating in an informal setting in a shop is is something that only people who are familiar with terms, terminology, um, etiquette, uh, and uh, can really engage in. And so the shopkeepers are showing up. They are, um, you know, ultimately sort of bartering, trading uh, in Swahili. And uh, the face, and, you know, this has been sort of taking place right through the end of the century. But what happens as the colonial state really establishes its whole hold um, in East Africa and tries to, um, you know, tries to tries to bring Africans into the monetized colonial economy, that's when that relationship between the Indian trader and the African customer really shifts. The colonial state is essentially interested in making sure that it gets taxed, well, making sure that uh, African labor makes itself available um, for its various uh, infrastructural projects as well as its agrarian projects. It also is trying to make sure that, um, you know, that and it does so by taxing, uh, because it's only if you impose really high taxes, can you force someone who otherwise is living, uh, you know, is able to provide for themselves. Uh, That's when they'll be forced to actually come out and perform labor. And they also are trying to sort of monetize by moving away from barter into introducing sort of colonial currency. The Indian trader, right, the person that you go to for your everyday supplies, be it oil, be it uh, um, tire for your bike, uh, you know, for your bicycle, be it clothes um, as they um, they start coming in, uh, be it sort of items of modern living like a clock or a watch or shoes, um, those all are being sold in the Indian trader's um, shop. And so the Indian trader sort of becomes this face of colonialism. And that in some ways really does establish the relationship, uh, the economic relationship between Africans and Indians. And in the interland sort of indigenous, um, you know, Africans are coming into the shop saying, okay, I have this sack of maize and I need to sell the sack of maize um, to pay my uh, taxes in actual currency and also to buy everyday goods. And the Indian shop became the place where you would not only buy your agriculture, uh, sell your agricultural produce, but also buy your um, everyday uh, needs. And the fact that the Indian trader was both the salesman, you know, in that sense, the salesman and the sort of purchaser, they ended up being able to uh, manipulate the rates that they charged for buying and selling in a way that it would make it profitable for them. And that creates a kind of structural economic relationship um, that was extremely difficult to move away from. And, you know, we'll get into what happens sort of later on. But that gets established super early on. But that isn't to say that, you know, that's the only relationship. And, you know, I really want to caution against thinking about the Indian uh, immigrant or the relationship between Africans and Indians as, uh, you know, as something that was consistent, that was a single story. In fact, there is no single story. So a way, a helpful way to think about this relationship really is in thinking about, you know, historical contingencies. And I sort of break up some of this time period into the early colonial period that is up to the First World War, the 1920s and 50s, uh, which I think of as a kind of period of high colonialism, but also anti-colonialism. And then the 1950s to the early 70s, which I, uh, you know, which I think of as sort of really that post-colonial period. And at every stage, at every one of these chronological sort of moments, there are shifting claims, uh, there are shifting sort of discourses of identity and claim making that are deployed uh, to assert a certain kind of position um, in the public political realm. 
Yeah, and you unpack that throughout the chapters, which move uh, chronologically, uh, and it makes us really rethink categories such as what does it mean to be an Indian, Asian, African, Kenyan over the first part of the 20th century. Um, in the first chapter, from the America of the Hindu to white man's country, um, in what sense were Kenny, uh, Kenyan Indians imbricated in the British colonial project, to think broadly? For example, is it fair to say that uh, to describe Indians in Kenya as settlers or quote-unquote sub-imperialists? Um, did the British encourage or reject some Indians' attempt to equate themselves with the white settlers in the Kenyan highlands? And what measures did they respond with by the 1920? That's a really good question. Thank you for that. Um, and it's one that I grappled a lot with. Um, you know, were Indians settlers, uh, settlers of the same sort that Europeans were? And was their settlement uh, similar to settler colonialism? And I know that, you know, settler colonialism in lots of new works that are coming out now on um, Indian migration is really sort of um, the 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 analytical framework that some new, you know, new scholarship is talking about, I actually um, don't necessarily take that same view. Um, I thought about settler colonialism as a framework. I ultimately found it um, not all that helpful in trying to unpack the very nuanced and shifting relationship between, um, you know, certain certain. Indian migrants and the state, right, the colonial state, the European settlers and Africans. You know, we have to think about what the Indians in East Africa are doing and the various different communities and groups within which they are trying to establish relationships into which they are entangled. Now, there's certain, and you know, that's why I sort of end up using sub-imperialism. Now, when I think about settler colonialism, I think about a group of people who come in um, to take land, right, to settle. Um, that settle that settlement is um, an overt act of dispossession of the land, uh, you know, of those who originally belonged, who lived there. Uh, but there's also, and you know, Indians in some ways are sort of part of that. But the other piece is that settler colonialism was very much about establishing state power, right? It was about empire building, establishing state power. And I didn't, uh, um, and you know, having representation, self-governance, right? That was a sort of South African model. That's what the Europeans settlers in Kenya are trying to do. I did not find any evidence um, of the India. So I found evidence of Indian settling, right? They definitely are uh, traders who are going in for economic opportunities. They are, you know, the richer capitalists who are thinking of, um, you know, more broadly, you know, beyond just their shop. Um, but I did not see evidence of even those who were going in with the intent of settling. I didn't see there any evidence of them actually trying to reserve state power for themselves. And in the absence of that imperial project, um, I, you know, what, for, for me, what was more useful in terms of a framework was thinking about these early settlers as sub-imperialists, right? So they are, this is not to say that they weren't in, you know, I think in the pre-First World War period, very much part of the colonial project. They were not critical of colonialism, imperialism, or even settler colonialism. But I don't see them as settler colonists themselves because there's that absence of the desire um, or aspiration even to grab state power. There was never any question of Indians having self-governance, you know, of Indians defining self-governance as Indians governing either Europeans or Africans, right? But what they were was, and that's why, um, you know, for that first chapter, the framework that I found much more useful uh, analytically to position these early you know, traders was that of imperial citizenship. 
they weren't thinking of themselves at this point as Indians in a nationalist uh, sense, right, in a political sense. Uh, they thought of themselves as Indians in a civilizational sense. Um, but they thought of themselves really first, you know, in terms of pol the political relationship with the state, it was very much about imperial citizenship. They were allowed, for example, to migrate. And the reason why they were able to, you know, their, their argument against the European settlers who were trying to stop their immigration was, well, we have the right to mobility because we are imperial citizens. And to be a citizen of the empire means that you can go and settle anywhere. Um, so imperial citizenship is very much uh, the term that I would, uh, you know, that, 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 that is, is how I would describe them. Um, but of course, you know, as we said, everything is historically, historically contingent and, you know, imperial citizenship is deployed as a means to try and grab uh, grab um, you know some amount of uh, rights and those rights are then denied and then they sort of you know drop that language of imperial citizenship as far as the question of the British, you know, again, much as the Indians are not sort of a singular category, the British aren't either. Um, there was a difference in this early response um, between, uh, sorry, there was a difference in this early time period between the response of the European settlers in Kenya itself, who immediately made the argument that, you know, the Indians are racially uh, different, uh, civilizationally and racially different from us and inferior, um, that we do not want them anywhere, that they should not be allowed land, they should, in fact, you know, migrate, immigration should be stopped completely. So that was the attitude of the European settlers, many of whom were British, but many were also uh, from South Africa. Um, Within India itself, the colonial government of India, so they are also the British in some ways, but they, their interest and their um, scope of activity is sort of limited to India. So the India office and the government of India, in fact, takes the side of these Indian uh, imperial citizens. And Tom Metcalf, I think, brings this out really beautifully when he talks about how India really, you know, if we have to think about the Indian Ocean region, India is a jewel in the crown, not just for you know the entire empire, but really it's the it's the Indian Empire across the Indian Ocean. And you know there were documents and files that I saw where this idea of imperial citizenship was really one that is first uh, you know embraced by colonial officials who are you know colonizers in India, but are very much supporting this uh, capital you know the cap the Indian capitalism, the big trade that is going on in East Africa, and they are pushing against the European settlers and you know, very much saying that the European settlers are racist against the Indians and, you know, the, the British crown must come in and intervene. And London, in that way, the colonial office is very much a balancing act in this period between the European settlers and um, the government of India. And in fact, initially, they come down on the side of the Indians and then sort of that gets reversed. But again, I think it's really important, you know, when we think about colonialism, we think about you know, the colonizers and colonial subjects, as if, again, these are neat categories where it's very clear who has power and who doesn't, when in fact, on the everyday basis, you know, in the, when you look in the weeds, things are much more complicated and there are these overlapping. And, you know, that's why I always go back to trying to unpack this as claim making, right? Who is making what claim and for what? Um, and again, this is this is sort of shifting. Yes. Uh, and during this time that you examine uh, in the book, uh, during the rise of anti-colonial politics, you also have the notion of civilization mm -hmm. and uh, developing discourses of Indian civilization, which seems to represent a collision between colonial era racial classifications and pre-colonial Indian Ocean hierarchies. Um, so do you think this tension uh, Justin's cosmopolitan accounts of Afro-Asian or Indian Ocean hist histories? 
Um, thanks for that question. Um, you know, and yes, as I said at the beginning, um, you know, cosmopolitanism um, has been a framework for understanding this mobility. And as I said, there is a place for it, but it really, it's the, the local moorings get lost and there is a territoriality. And that sort of comes back to that uh, second intervention of mine of place, where place is not just about, um, you know, where you are, but also the mobility, right? The sort of crossing of spaces, in fact. And notions of civilization absolutely were informed by what I would call colonial modernity, um, and claim making. Uh, but there also is, as you said, you know, identity is not something that is, you know, uh, only a colonial invention and the deployment of, but the deployment of identity in political claim making, I think, is something that happens, um, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in the context of colonial modernity. Now, the way in which I try to bring in and think about diasporic consciousness with these ideas of race, civilization, sub, that were being deployed in the sub-imperialist kind of politics, what I found really helpful was to then go back to um, go back to sort of thinking about that division that early scholarship had in uh, in diaspora scholarship between the homeland and the hostland, right? You know, the notion was, well, you know, you come, you know, the, the push factor is like you come from somewhere and then you end up settling somewhere, but in this liminal space where you don't really belong. And, you know, um, and, you know, this much of that theorization came from, uh, you know, post-colonial scholarship and, theory on uh, that was trying to critique the nation. Uh, but ultimately, I think it really positioned the diaspora in this liminal space that in a way alienated it from where they were. And in fact, when I looked at the kind of claim making, even when, uh, you know, discourses of civilization and race were being deployed by sub-imperialist uh, traders, you know, that language of imperial citizenship, it was not because they didn't want to belong in the quote-unquote hostland, but in fact, the civilizational discourse of where they came from was being deployed to make claims of belonging to where they were. And so I actually ended up dropping the language of hostland completely. And in fact, thought about diasporic consciousnesses really being about having two homelands, the civilizational homeland uh, that's kind of located, you know, in terms of actual um, Migration, of course, is sort of South Asia, India, but also in the imaginative sort of realm of where we come from, you know, what is our civilization? That civilization is the Indian ancient civilization, right? That was the language that was being deployed. So there certainly was a, um, you know, India, uh, the homeland, right? The territory of India, the space of India, the idea of India looms large in this uh, diasporic consciousness, but it isn't looming large to alienate um, or distance themselves from belonging in Kenya. In fact, it was a political claim. And that's why I talk about the hostland really as being a political homeland, um, a claim to belonging. So, you know, that the civilizational identity is deployed to make a, uh, the civilizational identity, which I really think comes from mobility, is being, from being mobile, is being deployed to make extremely territorial and local political claims in Kenya. And so I talk about these sort of two homelands as a way to um, understand that. And I think that that rootedness, right, that anchor uh, makes this framing of um, the Indian Ocean migration space is something that is a little different from the discourse, you know, from the frameworks of cosmopolitanism that have been used in other works of the Indian Ocean. Because I think that, you know, for the migrants and their claim making, there is an aspect, they certainly, they are cosmopolitan in scope, 
So they are very local and particular in their moorings, in their um, actual anchors. Yeah, and the following chapter, um, Political Homelands Across the Indian Ocean, definitely picks up on these uh, Indian political claims in an anti-colonial context. Um, so what were some of the manifestations of the uh, Indian anti-colonial p- uh, politics in post-World War I Kenya? And can you tell us more about the new African-Indian alliances that were forged and what sort of uh, internal and external challenges they faced through uh, the Second World War? Um, sure. And this really sort of gets to the heart of um, the book in some ways. And I think it was the first chapter that I had even started working on. Now, um, you know, as I said that, you know, all these positions and identities and uh, discourses of claim making were historically contingent. And that early chronology, you know, that chronology that I had offered at the beginning of uh, sort of the pre-First World War period as being one of settler, uh, of um, imperial citizenship, sub-imperialism. Now, that politics, it was very clear by the First World War, simply was not working, right? And it wasn't working because of the European settlers. The Indian traders kept deploying languages of civilization, you know, by civilization, essentially what they were saying was we are modern, right? Um, That we know about money and capital. That's what we do. Um, We are, you know, we come here to be part of the colonial project in that we are absolutely integral to creating this colonial economy to get labor out onto the lands, um, uh, you know, to get African labor out of their reserves onto sort of these colonial projects through, you know, we're the ones who are uh, enabling tax collection. So, you know, that's what they meant really by civilization. Um, what they meant was we are modern, we are, um, uh, you know, we are not African in many ways is what they what they meant. But that language simply didn't fly because the European settlers um, uh, and also the governor of Kenya, ultimately, who was very supportive of them, essentially said, well, the thing is that you can't really be making these claims to um, equity with European settlers, because after all, you might be you might have a civilization. We don't deny that, but your civilization is not really modern, which is why back in India you are still colonial subjects. And um, they then pushed it even further to say that, well, um, you know, if we did allow you to come in and, you know, buy land and things, you ultimately would be a bad influence for the Africans. And on the one hand, they did this to distance uh, and, in fact, stop any claim that the Indians might have made to, um, you know, sharing the white man's burden, as it were, um, in terms of the civilizing mission, um, as far as Africans were concerned. But they also began to say, and, you know, look at how exploitative, you know, they said it isn't we who've taken away lands from Africans who are the exploitative ones. Uh, It's the Indians who, in their shops, are cheating the Africans, who are charging them high rates, who are really impoverishing them. Uh, So they are, in that way, a bad influence as well. So the Indians, uh, you know, by the First World War within Kenya, they kind of realized that this language of imperial citizenship is simply not going to work and is not getting them any of their demands because the hold of the settler colonists, the Europeans, was so strong. And again, this is a particularly Kenyan phenomenon, right? The same is not really quite the same dynamic as is happening in India and elsewhere. Um, Meanwhile, of course, in India, you know, after the First World War, there is a shift in the kind of politics and the embrace uh, of anti-colonialism that takes place, Uh, you know, not entirely under Gandhi's leadership, but, you know, he is one of the key figures who goes back and is able to sort of mobilize um, right after the First World War during the Khilafat non-cooperation movement. Um, And the Indians, and, you know, I I should have said this at the beginning, the Indian migrants are not simply 
migrating without uh, and never returning to India, which is quite different from the migrants who go to the Caribbean and, you know, further out. But these are kind of circular migrations. And, you know, you could be a migrant who, um, you know, a trader or even a skilled worker in the railways who goes to East Africa. You then, you know, if you're a man, you kind of return to India, to your home, you know, to your um, home country, uh, home village or your hometown in Gujarat or Punjab to marry someone. You bring your wife across. Um, then you have children. Uh, the wife often goes back to have her child back in India, spends a couple of years, comes back to East Africa. Then when the child is, um, you know, school going, they're sent back to Bombay if you're rich enough. So, you know, there's a lot of back and forth and there's, of course, sort of new waves of migrants who come in. And so the it's it's right after that First World War um, that, in fact, uh, you have sort of the rise of Nash anti-colonialism in India and some new younger generation of migrants who are coming in are of that political bend. But there, there's also been that shift within Kenya where the language of imperial citizenship has, and sub-imperialism has simply not led to any actual um, any actual gains. And there's a realization that you know the gains have not been made because ultimately race. And racial consciousness is a great factor. And so the Indians in East Africa actually shift that language into talking about themselves as non-Europeans, right? That we we as non-Europeans must have these rights. And the minute you talk about being non-European and not simply as being Indian of Indian civilization, you are including in your imaginative scope um, and scale and actual sort of scale uh, other non-European people, i.e. Africans. And so right at the first world, you know, end of the first world war, you have, in fact, the very first alliance that takes place between and, uh, you know, uh, Kikuyu leader Harith Huku and the Indian, uh, Kenyan East African Indian National Congress, where they really, really they are coming back, um, they are coming together around this, uh, around different specifics and frustrations and Claims, you know, in terms of the everyday lives that, um, uh, 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 the, you know, for the Africans, it's about carrying identity cards, about their high taxes. For the Indians, it's more about immigration issues and not being able to buy land. But what they are both realizing in their spheres is that actually they are being denied all of this because they are being seen as non-Europeans. And there's a language of solidarity that builds up with an actual practical alliance. And this is an early one. Now, I, I want to emphasize that this doesn't mean that it takes place immediately and there's this mass mobilization of, you know, how hundreds of thousands of Africans and Indians rising up together. But there are these ideas, right? There's a sharing of ideas. So Hari Thuku also looking at, um, you know, other places where colonialism is being critiqued and uh, people are being mobilized uh, around, uh, you know, particularly in, in, in India's case, Hari Thuku sort of gets really interested in Gandhi himself in the Khilafat non-cooperation movement positions himself, in fact, as the Gandhi of Kenya, right? So again, there's a kind of cosmopolitanism in um, uh, in thinking and ideas, although the implementation is really, really specific. Um, so that happens in the 1920s. Um, by the 1930s, there is, in fact, the rise of um, urban unrest and labor movements. And here again, you know, in Mombasa, the pre predominantly the labor is African, but the first trade union that is established is established for Indian skilled and unskilled workers in the railways. So again, it isn't simply a story about the Gujarati traders, but in fact, the Punjabi uh, workers. And this happens in Nairobi and Makhan Singh, uh, who's at the forefront of this right from the early 1930s, is talking about 
allying, you know, and he's sort of, um, he is of a leftist uh, orientation. In fact, he announces, I am a communist. I uh, fight for the freedom of all countries. And he very much is embracing an interracial kind of urban politics, which is successful for a while. And I would say that the peak um, success of this interracial alliance is one that takes place in the realm of, you know, in that moment of anti-colonialism of non-European people before nationhood is actually being defined and uh, negotiated. So, and this would be sort of the uh, 90, you know, late 1940s through the early 1950s, where in fact the very first demand for independence in Kenya, right, you know, complete independence, not just the small demands of wages and, um, you know, the, the voting rights, but the demand for complete sovereignty and independence is made in 1950 by, you know, led by very first time, for the very first time led in public by Makhan Singh, uh, the Punjabi Sikh leader of the trade union movement. Yeah, and then the following chapter, um, Between Rebellion and Suppression, takes us forward to the Mau Mau period. So um, what led to the Mau Mau rebellion against the British, and what was the response of Kenyan Indians to that struggle? So the Mau Mau Rebellion, um, you know, it was, again, many things. There's no single story. And there's a whole uh, historiography of scholars who have dedicated their life <laughs> and careers to studying this who are disagreed on exactly what it is. So, you know, what I give you here is a very basic, brief um, sort of overview of events. Um, you know, it was at heart a movement uh, to dem demand land, um, you know, how the way in which the colonial state in Kenya was set up uh, with the European settlers was European settlers were sort of invited in um, in the late 1890s, uh, you know, early 1900s to basically take over what were called the highlands, uh, which were extremely fertile land. Um, and they were, you know, they, they were, there was a huge PR campaign to bring them in to try and make these lands productive, which for the most part they weren't because the European settlers who came here came in didn't really have any farming experience. Um, and so they needed labor to work on their, their land. You know, so A, that land is kind of claimed. Uh, the land itself was um, land where Maasai uh, communities had been uh, sort of, uh, you know, living, but they were nomadic. And then the Kikuyu had begun to come in um, just when the European settlers were also sitting in. But what happens, you know, by the early 20th century is that the European farmers have these huge acres of land in the highlands um, and they need people to come and cultivate them. And so they uh, allow Kikuyu workers, uh, known as squatters, um, to basically cultivate a little bit of that land for themselves and then work on their farms. And for the Kikuyu, this essentially meant that they had right to that land. Um, and for a variety of sort of reasons, including the mechanization of farms, all of this sort of shifts after the Second World War and the European settlers move to push away these squatters off their lands. And the squatters say, well, you know, these are our lands. We've been living here for generations. Uh, the European farmers say, well, no, actually, we don't need your labor any longer and you have no land rights. So they became become essentially landless. The initial movement, Mama movement, you know, as we trace back to the beginnings, uh, is with a group of squatters who say, well, you know, the highlands are our uh, ancestral land and we want it back, right? And that sort of starts the uh, movement to basically demand that the highlands are returned to those who, um, you know, have an indigenous claim with it. But I will sort of put the indigenous in quotes because, as I said, there's... Um, 
you know, the land belonged to many. And the Kikuyu squatter, you know, the Kikuyu who were settled on those lands right as the European settlers were coming in were in fact themselves sort of new settlers in that context. But um, they basically, um, you know, build up and mobilize around the return of their ancestral lands to, you know, throw the Europeans out and essentially for freedom, right? And this is sort of an expression of freedom. Uh, In that sense, one could interpret it as a nationalist movement, but it wasn't simply the squatters um, in the highlands. The labor unrest that I'd mentioned uh, in places like Mombasa and also Nairobi of the interwar period, um, that is also very much part of uh, what becomes the Mama Rebellion. Um, And so for the laborers, it was issues of wages and the working hours that mobilized them uh, against um, the colonial state. Um, And then there's also internal shifts that were taking place uh, within the Kikuyu. Um, There's a kind of generational shift uh, where gender played a huge role because under Kikuyu custom, you couldn't really marry until, you know, as a man, you couldn't uh, get yourself a bride unless you had some amount of land, right? You have to, quote unquote, become a man, uh, become an adult before you could uh, you know, claim that you wanted to get married. But in the era of extreme, um, you know, extremely limited land, because the best of the land had been taken away, the uh, Kikuyu had been put into reserves, these reserves were now overflowing um, with uh, people, young Kikuyu men found that generationally their own elders were preventing them from getting married, right? Saying that, well, you know, you're not really an adult, you're still a boy. And so the Mau Mau rebellion, uh, you know, also becomes one that uh, a lot of younger Kikuyu men and women end up joining. There's a sort of generational conflict. And the Mau Mau, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, of course, against, you know, for freedom, um, and it's the land and uh, uh, for land and freedom, they call themselves the land and freedom army. But it also was a civil war in some ways um, of the younger generation against the older. And violence becomes uh, the way in which uh, this protest, you know, this uh, rebellion sort of takes place. Uh, The violence was not just amongst the European settlers, but in fact, the largest number who died at the hands of uh, the rebels were um, the Kikuyu elder themselves. And those who were seen as supporting um, supporting uh, the colonial state. Now the colonial state comes down really, really strong, and this is where Caroline Elkins's work, you know, she calls it genocidal, um, right? There's a she calls it the British Gulag. That's uh, uh, the, the Gulag. That's one of the terms that she uses. Um, describe this counterinsurgency, uh, counterinsurgency. She talks about the concentration camps that were set up. Essentially, the colonial state responds um, in a massive way by deploying arms, by singling out, you know, by essentially picking up all young Kikuyu, putting them into a pipeline system of camps to try and sort of de, um, uh, to, to, to break them out of uh, the uh, Mau Mau mode. And it's in this, and an emergency, a long emergency is declared uh, for about eight years that, you know, arms them with extraordinary power to uh, the state, to uh, the colonial state, with extraordinary power to essentially, um, you know, impose, uh, to use violence, to uh, to shut down any kind of threat and dissent. Now, the Indian response in all of this, again, as I've been sort of saying, there's no single story, right? There's no single response. In fact, Part of what the Indians claimed was ineffective was that, you know, we didn't really have a united voice. But that didn't mean that they didn't have a voice. Um, 
right at the beginning, uh, the Indian National Congress that had been, the East African Indian National Congress that had been sort of part of those early alliances with Hari Thuku, with, um, you know, even the trade unions, they had, um, uh, you know, they, along with Indian lawyers, uh, Indian newspaper, you know, Indian edited newspapers, um, they actually supported the anti-colonial, recognized and then supported the anti-colonial aspects of the Mama Rebellion. They said, you know, the, the Kikuyu should have their land back, that they should be allowed to vote, that there should be freedom. Now, the they didn't go as far as to condone the violence of the rebels, but they chose instead to focus on the violence of the counterinsurgency. And, um, you know, Jawaharlal Nehru, who had become by now, of course, India's first prime minister, and his unselected diplomat, uh, you know, High Commissioner sent to um, East Africa, Papant, they were very much focused on criticizing the counterinsurgency rather than the insurgency, um, amplifying the demand for independence that was absolutely at the heart of the rebellion. Um, and then there were a handful of those who actually actively supported the rebels by, and, you know, rebel leaders by supplying some guns, by protecting them uh, in their houses when um, the army came in to basically sweep up any suspected rebel. Uh, but there was also um, a citizen vigilante group, especially amongst traders who lived in um, isolated areas that uh, you know uh, came up, and um, you know they are the ones who actively tried to. Um, arm themselves, to defend themselves against uh, rebels um, for economic reasons, but also political reasons. And what you get during the Mama Rebellion are two figures uh, who in some ways represent the polar opposites of the Indian responses uh, to the rebellion. You have Piyogama Pinto, who was a Goan radical, who uh, absolutely supported the rebellion um, and in fact comes in, uh, you know, when the African leaders of the main political um, organization are all arrested, he sort of comes in uh, and works very closely with those who haven't been until, of course, he is arrested as well. Um, Makhan Singh, the urban trade union leader who I mentioned, had in fact been arrested a few, um, you know, before the rebellion itself. And he remains incarcerated right throughout uh, the emergency. And then there's a man called Mangat, who was a lawyer, who, although he had been very supportive of the anti-colonialism of the 1930s and 40s, he ends up speaking out very loudly against the uh, methods of the rebels and begins to deploy the language of civilization again to kind of distance himself from, uh, distance Indians from um, Africans. And, you know, he tries to negotiate by the end of the rebellion years with the colonial state for more Indian representation within politics. You know, this is just to say that there is, uh, you know, rebellions are these really interesting moments in history where you think of them as these inflection points. Um, and because of that, there is no single story to them. Although, and what I found really compelling about when I was doing the research on this was to really uncover the voices of those who, uh, you know, have been dismissed in historiography as sort of unrepresentative of the whole, when in fact it was clear that there is no whole, right? which is why you could have all this multiplicity of voices. And as historians, our job really is to give, um, to, to really unpack the different voices, even those that ultimately were not remembered um, or, you know, were not that successful in mobilizing um, around. And, you know, what's been really wonderful to see after, you know, the book has come out is new scholarship by young uh, graduate students who are beginning to revisit, you know, big rebellions um, 
and look at, you know, not just sort of the main ethnicity or the main community that was uh, participated in the rebellion, but actually look at those, the others, right, the uh, the outliers who joined in. And I have a graduate student, um, uh, Trishna Patel, who's looking at, uh, who's writing her uh, PhD on Southern Rhodesia in the 1970s and is finding very similar figures to Piyogama Pinto, who had been part of this, you know, what is known as sort of the, the insurgency, the guerrilla warfare, but in fact were intimately, uh, intimately entangled with, um, you know, political leaders and others who had become part of this uh, rebellion. And I think that that's where, um, that's where we move away just from thinking about these figures as cosmopolitan Indian Ocean figures, but really looking at territoriality and the rootedness of their politics, even as they absolutely Absolutely, uh, you know, we're connected with um, other spaces and people. Yeah, and I think the following chapter, um, Negotiating Nationhood, also speaks to this uh, complicated character of anti-colonial responses. Um, so in this chapter, you show how in the years directly preceding Kenyan independence, uh, that African and Indian political leaders uh, debated over different formulations of statehood that reflected competing definitions of nationhood. So what was at stake in uh, the tension between racial and territorial belonging in Kenya during this period? And how did this tension shape the politics of decolonization? Um, so this, in some ways, is key, right? And I think that this ultimately comes back to uh, the problem of nationalism and the problem of um, defining citizenship as mapping race onto place. And, you know, in some ways, this does go back to those early European settler objections to the presence of Indians in East Africa, um, which were really about saying, well, you know, Indians belong to India because they are you know, quote unquote, racially Indian, right? That their race, and by race, you know, race is sort of this, the term Indian or Asian was used really as a register for a whole number of things, civilizational hierarchies, religious sort of differences and others. But there's this sense, I think, and again, it comes with colonial modernity, that, you know, race and place can be neatly mapped onto one another, when of course they can't, right? And they aren't. But what makes a nation, right? Um, uh, what makes the nation is uh, the territory, and the, the, those who belong are those who racially belong. And this is very much, um, uh, you know, uh, the shift that takes place between, uh, you know, in world history between imperial politics, right, empires versus nations. There's a sense that, you know, you can define nationhood and that to be a citizen means that you, and that you can, and belonging uh, to that nation is dependent on citizenship. And I think this is absolutely where the tension in some ways um, of negotiating nationhood comes up, uh, even though there was that, you know, what I could think of as a glorious era of collaboration of interracial solidarity. And this happens in a couple of ways. Um, one is that, uh, you know, in, and this is where I go back to that issue of structure and the uh, colonial economy and the structures that were put into place. Ultimately, Indians were, uh, you know, as migrants or uh, as children of migrants, were a numerical minority in um, East Africa. And uh, it was, a, you know, they were a numerical minority who could be identified uh, because they self-identified, uh, you know, as racially, uh, you know, as a racial unit, right? All those claims of civilization, you know, that sub-imperialist era of talking about Indians as being, uh, uh, having a civilizational homeland and all of that diaspora consciousness, you know, that doesn't go away. So being Indian or Asian is absolutely a discursive 
um, is on the one hand a discursive uh, form of identity um, that then begged the question of, well, then if Indians are sort of different from Africans, do they actually belong in the African nation? Now, Indians, as I said, were this racial minority, but although they were a racial minority, they had a lot of economic power and stability, right? They were not impoverished. Um, they were not, uh, you know, the, the the largest number. And although they were a minority, in terms of the economic power, well, the economic sort of position that they had in the Kenyan economy, in the colonial economy, was one, in fact, of, uh, you know, of, of, of power and um and majority, they were in that sense a majority within the um, within the colonial economy, and so the big question at in and, and and as I had also said, the relationship, right, the economic relationship between Africans and Indians was very much of that shop and what happened in the shop. And you know, in some ways, after the Second World War, there's a move of um, uh, Indian traders, those who were the richer ones, into manufacture, but. Ultimately, Indians were better educated compared to Africans. Uh, Indian uh, skilled workers got more jobs and better wages than the Africans. And as I said, you know, they had sort of this practical monopoly over the trade sector. So the big question at, you know, as decolonization and nationhood, um, you know, became imminent was what ultimately what, you know, what does decolonization and independence mean? Is it simply a transfer of power from British and European settler hands uh, to African hands? Um, or is it really about justice and equity that would mean a radical transformation of the structures that were in place, right, of the economic structures that put Africans at the bottom of, uh, you know, one could think of it as a pyramid of the colonial economy, a racial pyramid, where Europeans were at the top, Indians were in some ways economically in the middle, and uh, the Africans were at the very bottom. So what would, you know, so so once the emergency comes to an end, once, uh, you know, decolonization is imminent, the question about nationhood became, well, you know, who ultimately is being, belongs to the nation? And if the nation is about race and place, then, you know, the discourse, uh, cosmopolitan discourse of Africa for Africans ultimately puts Indians in this, uh, you know, position where Indians either have to identify as African, right, self-identify, but also be accepted as Africans by um, those who are um, claiming a politics of indigeneity and belonging first. Um, and also, uh, what does decolonization mean in terms of a radical transformation? And were those squatters who were Part of the, you know, rank, rank and file of the Mama um, rebellion, those soldiers, right? Uh, would they ultimately get the, you know, would freedom mean that they will get the land that they fought for, and they would only get that land if there is a radical transformation of resources? Um, within, uh, you know, post-colonial um, Kenya. And this really was what was at stake. So, you know, uh, what? How, how do you shake the political power of uh, the economic hold that Indians had on that sector of retail? Um, what does it mean uh, for Indians in terms of this mapping of, on of race and space as, as a racial minority? And ultimately, is decolonization going to mean an absolute radical transformation of the colonial economy that is, um, uh, or is it simply going to be a transfer of power? Right. And then the period that followed um, turned out to be one of Indian diaspora, right, which you take up in the um, in chapter six, Uhuru and Exodus. So was the exodus of Indians that began in late 1960s Kenya an inevitable outcome 
of the racialized East African politics that you've charted, or is there more to this story? Um, for example, um, we might think of the role of uh, Britain and India in uh, spurring these diasporas of East African Asians and the politics of citizenship that um, was implied there. Um, and then also, what was the role of the uh, racialized rhetoric within uh, Kenyan independence movements uh, themselves, and what claims did the Indians cling to during this process of decolonization uh, in 1963? So, you know, as a historian, I will say that there's never anything inevitable about uh, any historical moment, right, that all moments are historically contingent. And yet it is true that um, there were expulsions uh, across the Indian Ocean and beyond um, in, you know, that period of uh, decolonization. And in fact, you know, when we look at what's happening with the Rohingya in um, Myanmar, that is also, you know, what I would say is a kind of post-colonial expulsion that is ongoing. And it all comes back to that problem of defining nationhood um, as, uh, you know, singular, as mapping territory onto race, right? And defining who belongs and and, and citizenship. Now, uh, you know, very, very specifically with, the Indians in Kenya, I would say the the exodus in the 1960s was not inevitable if we look at 1950, right, when that first call to independence was made by Indians and Africans. Um, and it isn't as if there weren't the, the question of equity, economic resources, uh, wages, uh, and things weren't being, uh, you know, th- those were battles that were being fought right through the 1930s. There were boycotts uh, by African um, uh, sort of organizations of Indian trade uh, shops and things. So, you know, there was tension. I'm not saying that there wasn't any um, uh, tension, uh, tensions of class and race, but there was no questioning that, well, you know, when we get independence, you'll all just be thrown out, right? You know, that idea of expulsion, the idea of expulsion in a casserole border, in fact, was a kind of European settler one when they tried to stop immigration. It wasn't necessarily an idea that was being uh, sort of, uh, that had much traction in the non-European anti-colonial public space. Um, And then if we fast forward to the contemporary moment back in 2018, I think, uh, Indians, in fact, were recognized in East Africa as a tribe, like constitutionally, right? Um, And again, this was a huge moment of diasporic belonging. So when we look at um, the long durée, um, I would say that, no, you know, you have anywhere in the world, you get you have borders and nationhood being defined. You have moments at which discourses of exclusion are deployed uh, by the state to expunge. Um, but then things seem to settle down and then you have as many moments of belonging and claim making, um, you know, like that moment when Indians were made into a a tribe. So, uh, you know, I think the useful way of thinking about this question is um, really to think about post-colonial states as defining nationhood along racial, religious, and territorial lines. And you see this in every part of the, you know, former British imperial world. India's partition, you know, India's independence uh, is not a moment where you have a complete radical transformation of um, the state. In fact, it is very much a transfer of power. Um, And you have massive violence and a defining of nationhood uh, along religious lines, right? And and there's an actual sort of partition that takes place. Um, In East Africa, it was more along these racial sort of and territorial lines. And the problems really are not the people who move across the borders, but the borders themselves. 
So, you know, the idea of nationhood, again, as being a singular one, you know, and it's always contested, which is why you continue to have all of these um, splits in terms of claim making. But the idea of nationhood and the negotiations of a nationhood happened really in Kenya in the late 1950s, early 1960s. So I would say that by that point, it seemed like perhaps it was inevitable. You know, you know, yes, you can see the writing on the wall sometimes two or three years um, out, but I wouldn't say that it was inevitable from the moment of migration out in the late 19th century. And I would also say that it wasn't the only way in, you know, not everyone left, and it wasn't the only way in which the tension of race and class was um, uh, manifested itself and was accommodated because you didn't have everyone leaving. And in fact, there's a substantial population that stayed behind and remains sort of behind. Um, what was very interesting, you know, but but what gets lost in Again, some of the overview of, well, you know, these expulsions are taking place everywhere is, again, something that was very particular to Kenya. And as I was writing this chapter and, you know, looking at what is fairly boring material of, uh, you know, statecraft and sort of these legislative assembly debates and things, um, you know, boring to me, not to all. But what I noticed was that, in fact, what happens with Kenyatta state is that there is a massive leftist challenge to him. So Jomo Kenyatta becomes, uh, you know, the president in 1963. He had been the leader of the Kenya Africa Union and in fact had been one of the first to be picked up when the emergency was declared and the rebellion broke out, was picked up and thrown into um, exile uh, by the colonial state that, you know, wrongly thought that he was the mastermind behind the rebellion. But Kenyatta was very much of that older generation, and it's the younger generation who were pushing against him um, and his and saw his politics as somewhat um, conservative. Although once he's jailed, he's sort of you know deployed as the father of the nation. But you know this is just to say that when Kenyatta becomes a prime minister, uh, president, he does not, in fact, um, you know initiate a radical transformation of the Kenyan uh, economy. In fact, what he ends up doing is to negotiate with the British state to uh, find a way in which land will be bought and then sold back to the person who can buy it. And the person who could buy it was essentially the European settlers. So the European settlers, in fact, end up owning much of the land. Um, Kenyatta's own sort of political clique ends up owning some of the land as well. But what happens is that, you know, within the first five to six years of independence, it's clear to all those who fought for independence, particularly those who had really been part of that land and freedom army and expected that independence would bring them land, they found that, in fact, Kenya's, uh, you know, Kenyatta was not, uh, you know, uh, initiating this radical transformation. And within his own government, there was a leftist threat to him, his own um vice president basically takes a strong stand against this. And his own vice president's uh, right-hand man was Pio Gama Pinto. And Pio Gama Pinto ends up being the first political assassination um, in Kenya. And so what we have is, in fact, it wasn't so much race, but the politics of the left that makes Kenyatta's state super nervous in the early 19, um, uh, in the late sort of 1960s. And by the time you get the expulsions, what you really have is Kenyatta saying, okay, there's this moment there's an election coming up, um, you know, there is a leftist threat. So let me do the populist thing. And the populist thing is to basically, um, you know, uh, pick up an anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric um, right before election time. 
know, all of this is so familiar to us right now um, in the 21st century. He's like, you know, I, I want to divert away from the leftist threat by essentially picking up a populist stance of picking out the Asians. Um, and he tries to do this. The Indians, in the meanwhile, um, you know, are making in this landscape, are making the claim to belonging, right? Because those who had wanted to leave left at independence, they had British passports, many of them left. But many of them, in fact, the majority of them stayed in Kenya. And as they began to see the writing on the wall in terms of the expulsions, you know, it wasn't really even expulsions in Kenya. It was a series of legislative um legislations that were passed to squeeze the trader out. Um, and when the Indians see this, you know, and, or, but when they hear that discourse of, um, you know, the Indian who's a hangover from colonialism, it's it's the presence of the Indian trader rather than Kenyatta's economic policies that have kept Africans in poverty. You know, that kind of, uh, as they begin to hear this, their response is to say, well, we belong here because we built the nation. And when they said that they built the nation, what they end up doing really is deploying that early 20th century civilizing claims of modernity of the early traders and saying, look, but we've been here since Kenya was a nation. We brought trade here. We modernized Kenya. So in the post-colonial moment, um, they are deploying the same modernizing, uh, you know, sub-imperialist, if you want to call them, claims. But they are making those claims, uh, sorry, they are deploying that uh, that language to make a claim to post-colonial belonging citizenship and nationhood. Yeah, and it's that familiarity of the um, anti-immigrant rhetoric that you spoke mm -hmm. to that makes me want to ask uh, kind of a presentist question um, mm -hmm. in relation to the epilogue. So as you point out in um, uh, throughout the book, really, um, Enoch Powell was specifically mm -hmm. referring to uh, the potential mass migration of Indians from post-colonial Kenya when he warned in the infamously racist um, 1968 Rivers of Blood speech of a flood of black migrants overtaking Britain. Mm -hmm. um, and so given Powell's centrality to, in a British context, the race-based enclosure of Commonwealth migration um, post-1968, but then also sort of his uh, continuing influence on far-right ethno-nationalist movements, both within and outside of Britain. You know, Brexit is an example of an event in Enoch Powell's shadow. Um, is there more to say about how this history of East African-Asian diaspora that the book outlines might better inform our understanding of these sort of wide and pressing political struggles that are being fought today? That's a great question, um, and one that I think a lot about, um, you know, especially in terms of the reception of the book and some new work that I'm doing. Um, you know, there are a couple of ways of thinking about this. Now, on the one hand, I think that the presence of Indian migrants, you know, so, so on the one hand, we, you know, we think about, we have to think about mobility and uh, try and make the argument that mobility is a human right, right? Um, mobility, you know, people have moved across space much before borders were defined. In fact, the border comes next, you know, comes after and in a way comes to stop that mobility. And yet, even in terms of our politics, even if it is liberal politics, we think about mobility, you know, the border coming first and mobility coming after. But in fact, the border comes second. It's, you know, People are mobile, or a host of people ideas are mobile for a host of reasons, which of course are. And I think that we really have to, uh, as historians, think about what we 
you know, what if we say, well, mobility is a human right, what do we mean by that? And what does that help us do in terms of um, mobilizing, um, mobilization, political mobilization, in terms of, um, you know, spatial imagination, but also in terms of how citizenship is defined and deployed. Now, the presence of Indian migrants in many, many countries, um, and we, you know, I, I, you know, just off the top of my head, I think of Myanmar, I think of, you know, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, um, I think of Fiji, I think of the British Caribbean, I think of, uh, you know, which includes Trinidad, uh, I think of British Guyana, I think of um, Mauritius, of course, East Africa, South Africa, you know, Indians, uh, because of this belonging to that empire over which the sun never set. Um, they ended up uh, sort of not only moving uh, in large scale to different parts of the world, but even when the sun finally set of British on British colonialism, they remained and they had been there at this point for generations. And they are, and, and then all those tensions of race and place and belonging and the political economy really recur, um, uh, and they end up having these moments of um, expulsion. But what they really are a reminder to us is, and I think this is what is useful in thinking of this in the contemporary moment, is that these migrants are, in a way, the long afterlives, not just of colonialism but of nation building and modernity, right? Of the kind of modernity that emerges in the 19th century with the empire. Uh, but of course, you know, the end of the British empire isn't the end of capitalism, of modernity, of mobility, of nationhood, of the carceral borders that were absolutely tied up to this sort of imperial moment. And migrants are central to the 20th century discourses and definitions of nationhood in all uh, post-colonial countries. And when I say post-colonial country, I mean Britain as well. You know, we think about Britain as being the metropole and then, you know, India, Kenya, Pakistan as being sort of all the colonies that became post-colonial nations. But in fact, Britain itself becomes a post-colonial nation as it decolonizes. Um, and I think um, what what is very useful to uh, think about in terms of the history of Indians in Kenya who ultimately end up in Britain is, you know, one, that question that you raised about inevitability and expulsions. I think that, you know, uh, as I said, expulsions are historically contingent and we must remember the historical, um, uh, the contingencies, the processes, the factors that lead to that particular moment as a way to be vigilant against it. Um, we can be vigilant against it by always looking at the alternative trajectories, right? It's so easy for all of us to believe, well, you know, Indians kind of didn't belong. They were there as part of the imperial mission, um, you know, of the sort of uh, colonizing state. They didn't um, end up integrating, you know, whatever quote unquote integrating means. And so, of course, they were thrown out. But in fact, you know, that kind of move, the nationalist move to try and claim a single story means that we as historians sometimes don't look for the alternative trajectories, right? The people, the politics, the ideas that are kind of dismissed as unrepresentative. You know, someone like Makhan Singh or someone like Piyogama Pinto could very easily be dismissed as well. You know, he was just an exceptional person uh, and didn't represent anyone and was unrepresented. But in fact, they were representative, right? They were representative, not so much in terms, you know, we shouldn't judge them or their ideas as um, in terms of their mobilization, but what they represented was that particular historical moment where things were different and could have been. And I think that that really helps build solidarity, right? Um, interracial solidarity in particular, 
It builds empathy and it helps with mobilization. And, you know, one of the um, really incredible things, you know, I've, I've now in a way been working, you know, this book has been with me part of my life for about 15 years. And I got, you know, the generational shifts even amongst um, Asians in East Africa, but certainly amongst sort of the second, third generation uh, in the UK, the way in which this story, this book has been received uh, and the kind of um, activism and mobilization and memorialization of their own personal histories that are taking place um, in the UK, I think, are real testament to how there is a contemporary resonance to uh, this question of immigration and that, you know, these are all all these tensions around racial, class, uh, migrant sort of um, positions are ones that really show us the long afterlife and the ultimately unresolved issues of colonial modernity that is very much part of our contemporary landscape. Yeah, thanks for going through the book. I think, as you've demonstrated, um, it certainly speaks to these sort of stunningly broad and pressing political questions beyond uh, specifically Indian Ocean and East African context, though it speaks to them um, as well. Um, So, Sana, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, So just to close, um, can I ask you, what are you working on now? Um, Could you tell us about your current and future projects or what you hope to work on? Sure. So I have, um, you know, at the moment with COVID, I think everything has come to, to a bit of a standstill. And I'm my current, uh, my most immediate and urgent project is just using this time to read. Um, it's time that I haven't been able, you know, because I'm not able to go out and do research at the moment. And my headspace isn't quite in writing. Um, so I've been reading a lot, but I do have two research projects. Um, one is a smaller one, which is in some ways I've been grappling with for longer. And one is a larger book project. The smaller one is really looking at um, the experiences of soldiers from Western and Eastern Africa who came to India and Burma and were deployed on the Burma front during the Second World War. Um, There were close to 100,000, if not more, of them, and they spent you know, between 1943 and uh, 1947, several years in South Asia. And um, some of them even met Gandhi, some of them encountered on the road, uh, you know, Indians from East, who had spent 20 years in East Africa, learned Swahili and come back and, you know, literally there's a chance encounter. So I've been able to uncover a very intimate archive of fragments, because that's all that they are, where we get actual um, African voices on uh, their experience of being in South Asia. Um, and, I, you know, I'm sort of working on that as a small one-off, um, one-off essay. And uh, the bigger project, um, you know, the bigger sort of book project is one that looks at Burma and India in the 1930s. Um, I'm looking at that moment when um, I started with the moment when British India, um, you know, included Burma. And then in 1935, the government of India Act separates Burma from India. And the separation, although it's a kind of administrative government separation, in fact, it created on that frontier um, a border, a carceral border for the very first time in the history of South Asia. And, uh, you know, this is a border where I wouldn't even call it immigration because you can't really be a migrant without a border. It was a space of mobility. And, you know, close to 13 millions from, uh, you know, the the Indian, what we would call now sort of India, migrated to, you know, circulated between Burma and back uh, in the period between the 1830s and the 1930s. Um, But there was sort of... uh, Burmese nationalist movement to stop that, and that's sort of connected with this moment of 1935. So in terms of conceptualization, I'm really thinking about the 1935 
um, administrative separation of Burma from India as South Asia's first partition. And I'm trying to recover Burma's South Asian history, um, looking at uh, you know mobility, politics, um, and and everyday living, uh, because Burma, you know, we go, you know, we were talking a little bit about these, um, you know, about the Africanists and the, me being a South Asianist who's an interloper. But even when we think about this field that we call South Asia, um, Burma is almost never included, and Burma for some reason is included as part of the Southeast Asia um, era studies and not South Asia, although it shares a long border there's a lot of shared history so i'm basically looking at you know this separation in 1935 is india's first partition as a means to recover uh, burma's south asian history that sounds great i look forward to reading some of that so thank you sana for joining us um and thank you uh for listening to today's episode in which we explored indians in kenya the politics of diaspora published by harvard university press in 2015 This is your host, Michael Ramore. And I'm your co-host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.